Nice to see you tonight. My name is Paul. I'm the minister here. Uh, please keep the Bibles open to 1 Timothy chapter 2 on page 839 and you'll find a sermon outline on the back of your bulletin. I'm going to pray. We do need God's help, especially tonight. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son Jesus and his death on the cross and we thank you that you keep on speaking to us uh, through your word and by your spirit. And Lord, we do pray as we come to this passage tonight that yeah, you give us minds that long to be shaped by the scriptures and not by the world. Uh, help us, Lord, to hear you correctly. And Lord, I pray that uh, nothing that I say tonight in my um, delivery would be uh, offensive, but only, only your word would actually shape us. I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Tonight we come to what is probably the most uh, inflammatory text you could find for today's culture. And even as you as read in church, you can sort of sense the offence and the, the shock and the incredulation. And my guess is here in church there's a, a whole spectrum of people out there uh, there's a two extremes. There's a one extreme of the chauvinist who says, that's right, it's men only. And you've got the other extreme of the person who sits there and says, if that's what it says, if that's what the Bible says, I'm out of this church. And I'm guessing the common response is somewhere in the middle. A kind of a, mm, can that really be? And if that is the case, then what does it look like here at Church by the Bridge? Before I look at the passage tonight, I do want to give you a heads up. I'm really tied to my notes probably more than I usually am in preaching. And that's because I want to make sure that I've strived for real clarity. Every week I get emails, people tell me what they heard me say, which is not what I said. So I want to make sure that you hear exactly what I say tonight. Let me just uh, start with a few clarifications. I'm aware of, of people's experiences. I'm very aware of people's experiences. Many people here have come from churches where, where women preach regularly and we know able and gifted women who have great skills of communication. And many women here have great skills of teaching. And so it's easy to read these verses through our experience lens and to hear me as attacking individuals or denying the good God who has kindly done great things in your life through those people. I don't want to do that. I want to just teach the scriptures. Secondly, I'm aware of, of different positions. You know, our, our culture says you work out what you believe and you stick with it. And so there'll be some who come to church tonight with gritted teeth, sort of, I know what I think, whatever you say is not going to change my mind. And quite frankly, that's really sad. That's really sad because I hope that we come to church every week expectantly and longing for the word to, to shape us and change us and tweak us. Not in the person, not the preacher, but the spirit and the words. Thirdly, I'm aware of our society. Uh, the 20th century has seen a, a massive, or saw a massive shift in the roles of men and women. Just think about it. The 20th century, we had, we had the, the feminist movement, we had the contraceptive pill, we had women voting, we had equal rights in the workplace, we had education. And if you, if you transported a woman from 1907 to 2007 she'd be flabbergasted at that change in society and change of roles if you want and most of those changes have been right and good and beneficial 
You see, the Bible never says that, that women are inferior to men or unequal to men. And the Bible highlights the horrors of women being oppressed or, or men domineering. But the Bible does talk about different roles in marriage and in the church. And the Bible talks about manhood and womanhood. And it celebrates those things. So the Bible never sort of portrays a kind of what I call a, a unisex egalitarianism, a meshing of the sexes. It, it just celebrates the differences between men and women. And yet I'd be naive to teach this passage without recognising the competing voice of the world. See, all around us, we're fed this theory, if you want, that, that there's no difference between men and women. And so we're told that a woman, a woman should, should strive for the career and still raise the kids and still be a wife and still remain sane. And we're fed this lie that, that men need to be more like women, more girlified. And over the past 50 years, the church has tried to grapple with this shifting culture. And I want us here tonight just to have our minds shaped not by society but by the scriptures. Fourth thing before I start, I'm aware that many here will want to ignore tonight's passage as just cultural. You know, they say, Paul was a man writing to a specific situation where women were causing division in the church in Ephesus and women trying to usurp the men. And that's why Paul wrote this, and it doesn't apply to us now. Let me just say a couple of things. Firstly, of course the Bible is culture specific. Of course it is. Every letter written in the Bible is written to a specific culture addressing specific issues. You know, 1 Corinthians addressing sexual immorality. Colossians addressing adding to the gospel. And of course we can't read the Bible in a vacuum. But you've got to address and grapple with that what is the, the cultural practice that, that might change in time and what's the timeless principle that won't change in time? We need to work hard at finding the principle and then applying it to our culture. Let me give an example. And today we don't wash people's feet in church. That's the practice. But, but the principle is, is serving each other. Humble servants. Many of us don't greet each other with a holy kiss. That's, that's the, the culture if you want. But the principle is, you know, that greeting, a brotherly greeting or a sisterly greeting. And Paul's argument here, it doesn't appeal to culture, it appeals to creation. And if we decide that this chapter here is just cultural, then you know, what about the rest of 1 Timothy? Rebuking false teachers, appointing elders, being godly, Christ mediated for all people. Do we check that out as well as being cultural? And this is my biggest fear. My fear is that we play the culture card. We play the culture card on bits of the Bible that we don't like or that we find offensive. And if we keep doing that, as society changes, as our culture changes, we'll just chuck out most of the Bible. Because it is countercultural. Fifthly, I'm aware there are many here who will say, Oh, this is just Paul. Jesus didn't say this. And again, I guess that reflects our, our doctrine of Scripture. Are we going to ignore everything that Paul says? Are we going to deny that God chose to speak through his apostle Paul? Sixthly, I'm aware that I'm a bloke. And I'm sorry, I can't change that. I could change it, but I don't want to change it. Um, and for many, it, it would be easier to hear what I'm about to say from the lips of a, of a woman. Can I assure you, I'm just trying to teach the Bible and I apply it as best as I can. And I want to say, please forgive me if I'm, offend, I'm insensitive in what I say or the manner I say it. But I've worked really hard this week to see what the Bible says. Seventhly, uh, don't expect the unbeliever, the non-Christian to like this. 
They won't because it's countercultural. This isn't written to the world but to the church. Eighthly, please don't be ashamed of this passage. If you're here tonight and you're a visitor, we don't preach on this every week. It's just a bit of one Timothy we've got to. Please don't be ashamed of it. Ninthly, uh, can I urge us not to be divided? Please don't be divided. We might have different applications, but please sit humbly under the word, listen to each other, love each other, and keep the unity of the Spirit. Number ten, please delight in God's word. This does reflect a good God, a God who loves us, and a God who, who wants the best for us. You know, it's easy to sit under the scriptures when the Bible says what we like, what, what we like. When it tells us what we actually already wanted to do, we like the Bible then. But the real test is when, when the word disagrees with my mindset, you know, when we're offended by it or surprised by it, the test is will we seek to trust God and obey God in this one? And before we look at the text, I must also say, please read this text in context. What does Paul say back in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7? Look at 2, verse 1. He said, pray for all people. Pray the gospel will go out. Why? Verse 4, because God wants all people to be saved. The heartbeat of God is that God wants men and women to come to Christ. That's the backdrop of these verses. God wants men and women to relate in a way that helps the gospel go out. It's kind of bizarre, isn't it, that, that this issue or this subject rather than helping the gospel go out, it's actually made the church and Christianity and Jesus and the cross seem so unattractive. And Paul says, look, if you know Jesus, if you know Jesus, your heart will be changed. If you know Jesus, your priority will change. Remember in chapter 1, Paul said, the gospel of grace, it transformed me completely. And I could call upon Christian after Christian who would say, the gospel of grace has turned my life upside down and it's transformed my worldview. The gospel does that. And when you've grasped grace and when you've grasped the heartbeat of God you'll see things differently. And you'll see that God does want us to organise our meetings and our gatherings in a way that men and women exercise different roles but in a way that the gospel will go out. That's important. These verses are written for people in the church. He's not addressing relationships outside the church. He's not addressing women at work, women in businesses, women in bosses. He's saying, in your gathering in the church... What is going to help the gospel go out? So firstly tonight, a godly attitude in the church. A godly attitude in the church. Remember the principle? The gospel will transform your worldview. So let me ask you, in the eyes of the world, what makes a strong man? What makes a strong man in the eyes of the world? I guess you would say strong men are the, are the fighters, Strong men are the powerful ones, the successful ones, the ones who shout the loudest, who, who bully people, who get what they want. They're the strong men in the world. They're fighters. And, and then the gospel comes in and, and like, a, like a hammer against a, a glass, it shatters that illusion. Who are the strong men in the church? Look at verse 8. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. He says the, the, the strong men in church are not the fighters but the men who pray. He's not saying that women shouldn't pray. He tells everyone to pray in verse 1. In 1 Corinthians 11 he says women should pray in public. But he's saying men don't be like the world. Don't be like the world men. He says negatively I don't want you to be angry. I don't want you to be disputing. Positively 
I do want you to be holy. I want you to pray. He's saying, look, because God is a saviour, men pray. Because Jesus is a ransom for all people, please men pray. How do they pray? Look at the verse again. Lifting up holy hands in prayer. Lifting up holy hands in prayer. The emphasis is not on a posture. He's not saying if you lift up holy hands, if you lift up your hands, God will hear you more. Read your Bibles. The Bible says you pray standing and sitting and bowing and kneeling. Pray flat on your face. It's not the posture, it's the attitude, it's your heart. He's saying God wants holy hands lifted up. That attitude that's set apart for him. So men, when we come to God in prayer, don't come with with a heart full of sin. And we don't come with resentments and we don't come with bitterness and anger and dispute and we don't come hating our brothers and we don't come with a hidden sin and we don't come resenting God and we don't come with a bitter heart towards God because he let us down. We come before God with a holy heart and we pray. See, who are God's men in church? They're not the bullies, but they're men who pray. They're men of forgiveness and generosity and graciousness and holiness. Have you got it? The world says, lift up your hands and fight. And the Bible says, no, no, man, lift up your hands and just pray. Humble yourself before God. That's a sign, not of weakness, but of great strength. They're the strong men, the men who pray. What about the women? What about the women? Again, he's saying, the gospel will transform your attitude. You'll be, you'll be different from the world. So, if you walk down to a circle of key tonight and you walked into a bar... What do you see? You see, you see women who are, who are dressed to impress. And if you buy a magazine, you know, the top ten most beautiful women, what do you get? You get top tips on the externals, the looks and the hair and the makeup and the clothes. And if you talk to a teenager, they, they, they're buying into what I call the beauty myth. You know, you spend hours of effort and you spend thousands of dollars and you go to fashion week and the beautiful women get all the good blokes that's what our culture says that's what our world says and you see it in the business world in the bars, on TV, in the newspapers and in church women dressing to impress and so the world judges a woman by what she looks like and in comes the gospel and it shatters that and God says I don't want women to be showy and I don't want women to be shallow I want women to be beautiful on the inside and, and full of good deeds He's saying, if if you profess to be a Christian, you'll be different from the world. Look at verses 9 and 10. They are radical verses. I want women, I want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. You see, clothing, clothing is more than just a covering for the body. Clothing is a kind of self-expression. You you dress in a way that expresses who you are or you dress in a way that expresses who you want to be or how you want others to see you. And he's not saying women be daggy. It's not wrong to dress nicely or to be trendy. What he's saying is check your heart, check your attitude. Dress in a way that expresses your love for God. The word Paul uses here are, are modestly, decency, and propriety their words express a heart attitude he's saying Christian women you'll be different you know there's some fashions that you just won't follow and you won't parade your wealth or or your sexuality that's what the braided hair 
the gold, the pearls, the expensive clothes is all about. He's saying, he's not saying a woman should never wear pearls or gold, but that's the cultural bit if you want. The outworking in those days, gold and pearls was aware of the women shouting, look at me, look at me, I've got it all and I'll give it all to you. Don't mishear me, he's not telling women what they can and can't wear. That's legalism. I'm not going to tell you here sort of how long a dress should be or how short a skirt should be or how many bits of jewellery you can wear. That's not the point. Use your judgment on that. The point is check your heart and ask why am I wearing it. The principle is simple actually. You know, the stunningly beautiful women, the stunningly beautiful women, it's not about the external, it's about the internals. It's not about the clothes that you wear, it's about your character. It's not the veneer of the false glamour, but the character of a godly heart and good deeds. And I want to ask the women here, how would you want to be described? How would you want to be described? Oh, they're a great dresser. Oh, they're really trendy. You'd never know she was a Christian. Surely you want to say, oh, she's a beautiful woman. She's beautiful, she's humble, she's modest, she's godly, she's servant-hearted. She loves God. And I want to say quite boldly and, and strongly tonight, I reckon the problem is with us blokes. Most of us blokes are so shallow and we have succumbed to the way of the world and we perpetuate the problem by focusing on the beauty, the external, the outward beauty. And I think we need to, need to repent of that and start to value our sisters in Christ for their inner beauty and their good deeds. Did you get the point? The gospel, it transforms your attitudes in church. It's a massive mind shift because we live in such a shallow world. Men, don't fight, but pray. Women, don't power dress, but power deeds. Good character, godly attitude. That's the first point, a godly attitude. And that will make the gospel attractive and the gospel will go out. Secondly tonight, a godly order in the church. Godly order. John Stott has called these verses probably the most controversial verses in the whole Bible. Let me remind you a few things. We don't expect the unbelievers to like these verses. We can't say they're just first century Ephesus because they're grounded in creation, not culture. We can't dismiss them as just Paul's opinion. Otherwise we chuck out everything Paul said that we don't like. Let me say what these verses are not about. They're not a statement about gifting. 1 Corinthians 12 makes it very clear that women have many gifts which are to be used to build up the body. They're not a statement about intelligence or communication skills. He's not commenting on the ability of women to read or to think or to grasp or to explain. Many women do that better than men. He's not talking about society, you know, the workplace or business. He's talking about the church. And he's not wanting us to write a list of what women can and can't do. That's legalism, that's dogmatism. And if you're sitting here tonight wanting a, a black and white categories, again, repent of that. Let me just read verses 11, to 11 and 12 again. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. The what? The why and the so what. The what. 
Words in the Bible are really important. Let's look at four words. Silence, teaching, authority and submission. What's that word silence in verse 12? She must be silent. So we hear the word silent and we just think absolute, you know, no speaking. Notice here it's in, in, in contrast to authority. Verse 12. To have authority over a man she must be silent. So the silence here is the opposite of using speech to exercise authority over a man. And the same word silence is used twice in this chapter. So let's look at it. Verse 2. He says in verse 2, you may live peaceful and quiet or silent lives. Verse 2. Again, he's not saying absolute silence. He's not saying you can't speak to anyone. He's saying, you know, your life shouldn't be disruptive or argumentative. It's that quietness. It's that untroubledness. It's that contentment if you want it's the same word in verse 11 a a woman should learn in in silence or in quietness he's not saying shut up woman it's that quietness that that respects and and honours the leadership of the man that God has called to oversee the church it's not absolute silence it's that quiet demeanour it's that longing to learn not by disagreeing but by listening So what's the teaching in verse 12? I don't permit a woman to to teach. Again, it's not a blanket no teaching. He's not saying women must must never teach. You know, there are many places in the Bible where where women teach. Let me give you a few of them. 2 Timothy 3 verse 14. Timothy was taught by his mother and his grandmother. Timothy became a Christian through the teaching of his mother and grandmother. God used women to bring him to faith. Or Titus 2 verse 3, the older women are commanded by God to teach, to teach what's good, to teach the younger women. Or Acts 18, Priscilla, she taught with her husband Aquila, they taught Apollos, they expanded the scriptures. We've got examples of women teaching. So we can't say that every type of teaching is forbidden. And he's not saying women must never teach men. You know, Colossians talks about teaching one another. The one-on-one, the discipling. Both men and women can do that. So what is the teaching here in verse 12? The teaching word is the, the didactic word. It's the, it's the proclamatory word. It's the doctrinal word. It's the public preaching in the public gathering. And it's some kind of teaching, look at verse 12, that relates to authority. That's the link that Paul makes. I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. What's his authority? Just flick over to to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. You've got to read this, this chapter, if you want, in the context of the whole book. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and same word, teaching. And if you look back in chapter 3, the elder must be able to teach. And what he's saying there is that, sure, you can have some authority in church without teaching. You know, you can have the authority over the property or the authority over finance. That's not a teaching role. But there'll be a few in church, just a few, who have spiritual oversight, who have authority in terms of teaching. Teaching. And they'll teach and they will preach. 
And you know, the way that you exercise authority in church is not to, not to coerce and not to dominate and not to politically maneuver, but to teach, to teach the scriptures. Because teaching is at the heart of authority. You know, our authority is not church structures, it's not Anglican regulations, but teaching the scriptures, teaching the word. And so the person in the pulpit, if you want, they're the ones with authority. And I think that's what Paul is addressing here. See, he doesn't permit a woman to do that thing, that one thing. To exercise authority by, by preaching and teaching in a mixed gathering. Now think about that. 99% of men in church won't do that either. Most men in church won't, won't be teaching elders. But women are not to be teaching elders. Paul is forbidding women to teach where that teaching is an exercise of authority or eldership over men. And so, you see, a, a woman leading a man by teaching him God's ways in a public gathering is the opposite of her learning in quietness and submission. Now, what is that submission of verse 11? Look at it again. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. What's striking about that verse is that a woman should learn, actually. A woman should learn because that is countercultural for Paul's day. You know, the Jewish women were told not to learn. And Paul says, if you're a Christian woman, don't be ignorant, learn. And read 1 Corinthians, they're to be part of public gatherings, they're to pray in public, to prophesy in public, read the Bible, read the singing. But when it comes to learning, you learn in quietness and submission. That word submit is just again an attitude thing. It's a respect or a recognition of order. Submission is not the same as inferiority or inequality. It's just respecting different roles. And we all submit to different people. You know, we're told to submit to governments, all of us. And the church, you know, they submit to Christ. Is that a negative thing? We don't shake our fist at Christ and say, how dare you do this? No, we just trust him that he knows best. And so we respect him and we, we, we trust him. And yes, wives are, t- are told to submit to their husbands. Not, not in, a, in a doormat way. Of course she avoids her opinion. But you know, when, when a husband is loving his wife selflessly and sacrificially in a Christ-like way, when he, when he wants to see his wife grow and flourish, then she'll respect him. And because the church family reflects the family at home, the women are called to submit. Now listen carefully. Who are the women to submit to? It's not every man. He doesn't say women must submit to all men. It says submit to the man who, who teaches, the teaching elder. I think it's actually quite simple. It's a struggle, yes. It's difficult to hear, yes. All he's saying is in a mixed public assembly, not everyone should teach. Not every man, not every woman should teach. Just a few. And the few who do teach should be, should be men. Now why is that? Look at verses 13 to 14. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. It was the, Adam was not the one deceived, it was a woman who was deceived and became a sinner. He's saying, you're to have this in church, why? Because of God's order. And this command is not a result of the fall. God's order is not a circumstance of living in a fallen world. It was the way God intended it, right back at creation. It's God's good, perfect, created order. Verse 13, Adam was formed first, and then Eve. The emphasis on the order, first man and then woman. And so you see, friends, the, the fact that Adam was created first, it's not a random thing, it's not an insignificant thing. 
God formed Adam and then he saw it wasn't good so he formed woman and she was complementary but different completely equal but different physically, biologically, emotionally different and please listen carefully those differences are not a result of sin manhood and womanhood it didn't come into existence because of sin God made them that way they're beautiful it's that mutuality that God created and it works but then sin enters the world and you know, rather than giving freedom sin took those roles of manhood and womanhood and it obliterated them it's like, like a stone on a, on a car windscreen it shatters it and sin destroyed those complementary roles what does verse 14 say about sin? Adam was not the one deceived it was woman who was deceived and became a sinner do you remember when Eve was tempted? Eve thought she'd be like God and we heard that in Genesis 3 but there's a subtle difference in Genesis 3 what was Eve's sin? Eve's sin was, was listening to the serpent she was deceived by the serpent now what was Adam's sin? Adam's sin it was listening to the woman listening to his wife he, he wasn't deceived by the serpent he listened to his wife and he, he knew what she was saying was wrong but instead of correcting her he listened and he followed and that's the difference you know Eve was deceived by the servant precisely in taking the initiative over the man the man that God had given to care for and love her and Paul is saying when that happened there was a fundamental shift or change in order so the, an- the animal was leading the woman and teaching the woman and the woman was leading the man and teaching the man and, and Adam was weak and abdicated responsibility and that's the way of the world a changed order if you want and then the gospel comes in the Lord Jesus comes in and transforms that worldview and shatters that mindset and redeems the order. I've seen it happen in so many people, you know, men who become Christians and suddenly they grasp what it means to be a Christian man. Not in a domineering way, not in a weak way, but a godly way. And women, strong women and able women, and the gospel just helps them delight in that order. And I'm not saying it's easy, I'm saying it's right and it's good. And Paul is not trying to create a new role for men and women. He's trying to recover what God has made. Redeem what God has made. He's not saying that women are more gullible or more easy to see. He's just saying there's an order. And that should be reflected in the church. Let me try and preempt a few questions. If we're saying women shouldn't be the teaching elder in church, the expander of scriptures in the, in the public gathering, I guess you're asking a few questions. You know, are there other scriptures to back this up? The idea of an order of men and then women. Yes, there are. 1 Peter 3, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14. And you might be saying, oh, what about Galatians 3.28? You know, Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. Doesn't that mean equality? Yes, of course it does. That's the wonder of the gospel completely equal in God's family no superiority in terms of salvation no one is excluded from Christ on the basis of gender but that verse has got nothing to do with roles in the church or in the family oh you might say what about you know, the great women of scripture what about Deborah or Priscilla I say yeah they were wonderful women that God raised up and God used them mightily it's interesting though at the time when they were raised up the men were pathetic and helpless and weak what about the great women of today 
What about the pioneers of missions? I say, yeah, I praise God for them. And I pray that God would raise up many, many more women who be pioneers of missions. But God still urges us to see good men who can teach the Bible in mixed gatherings. What about BFGs, Bible fellowship groups? Can, can a woman teach in a BFG? You know, 1 Timothy 2 is not talking necessarily about BFGs, it's about the public teaching, the public elders, if you want. So I guess that question depends on whether you call your BFG a, a church or a mixed gathering. And it depends on how they teach. You know, so what I'm saying, listen carefully, is that at Church by the Bridge, you'll only find a man who will preach on a mixed Sunday gathering. Uh, men and women will do heaps of other things. You know, they'll lead the singing, lead the prayer meetings, pray, read the Bible, disciple one on one, teach other women, teach kids, and yes, they do teach BFGs. Would I have just a female BFG leader without a man? No, I wouldn't. Can a woman teach? It depends how they do it. You know, you can teach in a way that seeks to usurp and stamp your authority, but there's a teaching in a way that's you know, discursive and didactic and less didactic, and it's not top-down. And I think that's what BFG should be, where you sit around the Word together. And so, yeah, I don't have a problem with the women teaching at a BFG here at Church by the Bridge. We've got to close soon. Let me just say a few words on the so what. What does it look like? I'll start with the women. If you take nothing else from this sermon, please take this. Women should delight in being a woman. Women should delight in being a woman. I think that's what verse, that was, that's what verse 15 is saying. It's a difficult verse. Look at it with me. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Now some have said this means they'll be saved in childbirth, they'll be kept safe in childbirth, so, so no godly woman would die whilst having a baby. But that's not how the word save is used, and it's not true. Many godly women have died in childbirth. Or some have said it means saved through the birth of the child, and they, they run to Christ, you know, Mary gave birth to the child. That is just theological gymnastics. What is this verse saying? I think it's pretty simple. They will be saved through childbearing. He's not saying, women, if you give birth to a child, you'll be saved. He's not teaching salvation by works. The second half of the verse makes that clear, if they continue in faith. What he's saying here is about the working out of your salvation, a sign that you, ha that you have been saved, a sign that you've been transformed by the gospel, is that you're different. And you know, you delight in bearing children. That's the cultural bit, I guess, you know. The women of the day were, were mostly married and they were mostly having kids and childbearing is an obvious way of saying just delight in being a woman. You know, it's a huge privilege today, isn't it, to, to, to raise a child. Uh, and you know, a woman might not teach to the masses but that incredible privilege of raising a child in the faith. Our world looks down and even despises motherhood these days and Paul elevates it and says to bring up a child to know and love Christ you can have more impact than most preachers in the world. And unless there are single women here or childless women he's not saying you have to have children. That's the culture but he's just saying if you're a woman just delight in being a woman. Don't strive to be a man. And for the men well for those of us in teaching positions a small minority here 
that we've got to strive to be loving and humble and servant-hearted and Christ-like and check our attitude. Are we teaching out of pride or selfish ambition? Or do we love lording it over people or, or do we just genuinely want to see people grow and become more like Christ? And for men in general, I want to say this, you know, how dare we look down on women? How dare we take 1 Timothy 2 in a sort of a bullying kind of way? And I fear that some men in church do that and in our diocese do that. And we need to repent of that. It's not talk about lording over women. It's about seeking to encourage them and build them up and see them flourish. And finally, for both the men and the women here, I want to urge us to delight in using all the gifts God has given you to serve. You know, there are hundreds of different ways to serve in church. You know, saving souls, healing broken lives, encouraging people, equipping others. And sure, a few men have been given the responsibility to teach and to, to mobilise the other men and women in church to ministry. But there are so many other ways to serve and to be honest, it's, it's really sad, it's incredibly sad when, when men and women forsake or ignore all the ways they can teach and disciple and evangelise and they hanker after, they're obsessed with this one thing of preaching in a mixed assembly. And it's like we're back in Eden. The, the one thing that we're told that we can't do, that's all we want, we won't stop until we get it. And as a result, we just neglect all these other ministries. It's pretty simple, I think. He's saying, be a man, be a woman, and delight in that and rejoice in that. So friends, we've got a choice. You know, we could say, scrap God's order, follow the way of the world, and keep the world happy. And when a church does that, I say, do it at your peril. Or we could say, you know, I struggle with this but God knows best this is his word and I'll trust him I'll trust him with his order why? because we want the gospel to go out we want people to be saved let's pray